0: Girls5eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 142 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast presented by the iconic Empire Hotel on New York's Upper West Side. I'm the host Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an actress and comedian who, at the age of 70, recently was hailed by New York Magazine as "quote the funniest woman alive." Close quote. A top star of stage and screen who has two Tonys and two Emmys on her mantelpiece. The great Andrea Martin. It's not a coincidence that Martin currently is starring on TV shows executive produced by Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, NBC's Great News and Hulu's Difficult People, respectively since her comedy helped to inspire a whole generation of women to pursue careers in comedy. She first made her name back in the early 70s in Toronto as a star of the blockbuster 1972 theatrical production Godspell, of films like Ivan Reitman's 1973 horror flick Cannibal Girls, and especially of sketch comedy as one of the standouts at Toronto's Second City Improv Club, which spawned the sketch comedy TV show SCTV, On which she was a star, writer, and performer. Over the course of our conversation at the Empire Hotel, Martin and I discuss a wide range of topics, among them, how a woman who insists she's never felt comfortable doing improvisation wound up part of Toronto's legendary improv scene that also included the likes of Gilda Radner, Martin Short, John Candy, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Victor Garber, Harold Ramis, and Paul Schaefer. Why Edith Prickly, a fictional network programmer turned bartender who's so old that she can remember, quote, when the Dead Sea was only sick, close quote, became her signature character on SCTV? What makes acting in the theater generally, and Broadway specifically, the thing that she loves doing more than anything else? Why, after having to miss out on playing Faye's mother on 30 Rock, she was so delighted to be asked to play Carol, a woman who gets an internship at the news station where her daughter's a producer, on Great News? the 10-episode first season of which still is rolling out, and a 13-episode second season of which already has been ordered, and much more. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Andrew, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. And to begin with, we always just ask a basic one. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living. I think people often get this wrong with you. They assume you're Canadian. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so I was born in Portland, Maine right. at the Mercy Hospital. How about that? There you go. And my mom and dad are Armenian mm-hmm. and, uh, well, they're passed away now. Mm-hmm. And my dad was a self-made man. He only got education up till the eighth grade mm-hmm. and and then be, was a very successful grocer and restaurateur. And yeah.
0: Yeah. And growing up, we're movies or TV or theater a big part of your life?
1: You know, I, as I said, I grew up in Portland, Maine, so yeah. I didn't, and I'd never been outside of Portland really. Yeah. So I would say the television had a big influence. I remember the Ernie Kobach show mm-hmm. and I remember the Honeymooners and Disney on Sunday night and the, the Disney shows and um, How about Carol variety? Burnett.
0: I was going to say, yeah, maybe some variety All shows. All those variety yeah.
1: shows, Jackie Gleason. Mm-hmm. I, I, those really influenced me, but it wasn't until I saw Gwen Verdon. What a great way to begin a love for theater in Sweet Charity in New York. My father, you know, they knew I loved theater, mm-hmm. and so that we took a trip to New York, and I, I saw her, and you know, this was nobody better really, musical theater.
0: You say they knew you loved theater. How did they? How did you know you loved theater?
1: Um, at nine years old, I was enrolled in a little acting program at the. Art Gallery of Portland, Maine. They Mm -hmm. had an after-school program, and then my first professional show. I wasn't professional, but it was at the Kenny Bunkport Playhouse, South Pacific. Mm -hmm. Penny Fuller was the lead in it, and they auditioned, you know, local people, and they cast me in the part of Liat, because I guess being Armenian was as close (laughs) to Polynesia as you're going to get in Maine, and. I don't know, you know, it was a hobby for me, Scott, like, you know, kids going to hockey or ice cream. I don't know, it just was, I guess, how did I know it? Maybe, you know, I had a lot of energy as a child and I think I was always expressive and creative and I just one thing led to another. However, yeah. having said that, <laughs> never, ever, ever did I think that hobby would lead to a career i i never thought that that's
0: what i was going to ask like how early on did that notion even present itself that this was something that you could do as a as a profession
1: i honestly i'd say w- the day i graduated from college emerson college mm-hmm. i took a bus to new york city only cuz I heard that's what people did when I don't know <laughs> right. if you want to be in a play, right. you got to go to New York. Right. I knew nothing. I, you know, really grew up in a very provincial manner. And then at those in those days, they had two newspapers show business and backstage, and there were casting calls. I didn't have an equity card, of right. course. So within two weeks of being in New York and being in a sublet, and I remember it was on the Upper West Side, I got that newspaper because our teachers at Emerson told us that there were two things we had to do, read the New York Times Arts and Leisure section for the rest of our life (laughs) every Sunday and to get those two newspapers. And I saw that they were auditioning for your good man Charlie Brown. And I I was familiar with it because a lot of plays came through Boston. And as part of the curriculum, we saw a lot of things at the Wilbur Theater and the colonial. Sure? Yeah. And I knew I was short and I knew I was loud <laughs> and I knew I had a personality. So I, and I, I auditioned and I got the part of Lucy, Lucy two weeks out of college and got my equity card and Pat Birch choreographed it and directed it.
0: The amazing thing about how I guess life works is that had you not fit some of that criteria, right, you wouldn't have gone out for that particular part, which means you wouldn't have then been in a Touring production of it, which went to Toronto.
1: It was a touring production of, it didn't go to Toronto, but it was comprised of Canadians. Canadians, you're okay. absolutely right. And it was a, the company started in Canada, but it became the national touring company in the United States. And everybody in it was Canadian except for me. <laughs> and you're right, I fell in love with a boy playing Linus. His name was Derek McGrath. And after the tour ended, I think, honestly, I was too scared to really audition in New York to really assume the life of an actor. And because I used to fly back on the weekends to be with my boyfriend, I was a big fish in a small pond in Toronto, and that was much more comfortable for me. Because I I didn't really know, because it was really new for me, thinking, Mm -hmm. well, I I guess it could be a career. You know, times were different, too. I think in the 70s, you know, kids didn't have access to social media. They mm-hmm. didn't realize they could become a star overnight because nobody became stars overnight. Yeah. So I I didn't know how to... Par- I, I honestly, just one thing led to another, and I don't think it ever dawned on me that wait a minute, I, I, okay, I think when when I got the first Tony in 1992, yes. and I was 45 right. for God's sake, then I thought, okay, I guess this is, uh, <laughs> maybe I could have a career in the theater. Oh, my gosh. But i have been living in L.A. and raising right. my kids. So, yeah, it came very late to me, the, the reality that it really was a profession.
0: And being in Toronto, I guess, because of your boyfriend, then you decided you also independently loved Toronto. You just wanted to stay there. Yes. And— because you were in Toronto, I wanna to try to get the chronology of this right. Yeah. I before even Godspell, which we'll come to as a major thing in your life, even before that you were working with Ivan Reitman on these on these early movies of his, right?
1: Absolutely. So let's see. No, I don't even know if I can get the chronology right. So it's in the 1970s, right, seventy so Foxy Lady comes out in wait,
0: 71, ah. Cannibal Girls comes out in 73, and in between in 72 is when you started, I guess, in Godspell. So, But ah. I mean, probably you would have already shot Cannibal Girls maybe. Yeah. So you would have shot these two, Ivan, Reitman movies, which we should note also – Involved Eugene Levy, right? How about
1: that? So, Boy, our lives have interwoven for our whole life, really.
0: But those movies—was that basically at that point was was the hope? I'm going to have a career in film, or it's just <laughs> this is just a job. Let's do it.
1: You know, honestly, as I said, I. I wasn't thinking of career, really. I know this sounds terribly naive. <laughs> I was just one thing led to another. you know, there was a good man, Charlie Brown, then I'm in Toronto and in those days you could walk into an agency and get an agent. and so I got an agent immediately. I think he must have sent me to an audition with Ivan and I got the part of Foxy Lady, mm-hmm. which Ivan has that, that nobody can get a copy of that movie. <laughs> I tried to once from Ivan. He said it's buried in the bowels That's of so my uh, the, funny. of the basement. But Cannibal Girls, by the way, yes. is a cult, kind of a cult horror film. And Eugene and I won the Best Actor and Actress Award at the Sitges, Sitkas, I don't know how to pronounce it, yeah, yeah. International Horror Film yeah, Festival, yeah. which has actually become prestigious. But even then, I didn't even know what anything meant. So Because
0: you just were, let's just keep plugging ahead. That's not, it. Not thinking in terms of career. But Cannibal Girls. The thing that I think this might mark the beginning of, which is, which is very interesting, Is improvisation, which has been a big part of your life. Is that the first time you did that?
1: Yes. so Eugene and I, we improvised, really, Cannibal Girls, the movie. We Mm -hmm. improvised that movie. Uh, I didn't even, how did I even? Yes, I'd never improvised before, never. I don't know. I I don't even know how it happened other than Ivan must have seen something in both of us. We were comedic, certainly. It's a comedy horror film. A scary one, by the way. I don't don't know. There wasn't wasn't really a a game plan. Do you know what I mean? Sure, no, totally. But I mean, this
0: whole idea even of improvisation, today everybody throws that word around. Everybody does it. But, and it doesn't mean they do it well, but but (laughs) for you at that time, where did you even have this concept of what it was, let alone do it, learn how to know how to do it well.
1: I don't think that, I think that's an interesting question. I do not think the word improv was bandied about, not until I was a member of Second City. Right. No, I think, oh, I wish Ivan was here to to <laughs> clarify it, but I think he obviously saw, in Eugene and I, and Eugene was like a PA, saw yeah. something interesting, came up with a story with his Longtime producer Dan, I can't remember Danny's last name. That's Mm -hmm. terrible. Will come to me. Sure. And I think there was an outline. I think the movie was made for twelve thousand dollars. It was shot like in twelve days. So, I think he must have seen something in our personalities. He knew we were funny, and it was just kind of a, a creation in the moment. Right. But nobody said, it's not like Judd Apatow right. said, okay, here, we're gonna Im- right, improvise right, right. this film. There, there was nothing like that. Right. We weren't you know, creating a new form, <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> well, so as a result of, of those movies, what changed? Was that, was, was Godspell a result of you having a larger profile or was it totally separate and because you just had theater credentials? How did this production, which went up in 72 and today is still- Discussed because of this unbelievable cast, which I guess correct me if any of this is wrong, but Godspell had opened in on Broadway yes. in New York, yes, and then because it was successful, has all these different
1: yes offshoots. Ancillary. Yes, so here's what happened: when uh, my junior year of college, I went to Paris and I studied the Sorbonne. Mm-hmm. And at the time, God's well, I don't even remember when Godspell started on Broadway, but I saw it in Paris. Mm-hmm. I went after I graduated. I was there my junior year. I studied at the Sorbonne, and I've always, and we can talk about this when we talk about Pippin, but I've always loved the circus and mime. I I went back after I graduated and studied with Jacques Lecoq, and I saw a company of Godspell in Paris. So it was already in Paris. It was in Paris. And so I moved back to Toronto and knew from seeing it in New York and in Paris that Dear God, the show was made for me. You didn't really have to sing or dance, but you had to have a bigger-than-life personality. And Godspell, auditioning for Godspell in 1971 Mm -hmm. or two, was like American Idol is today. The lines were around the block. Yes, you know, yes. So
0: even in Toronto? 100%. I,
1: I remember clearly the auditions because the... Theater was packed with young kids, uh, you know, with not very much experience. I remember Marty Short's audition. He sang My Funny Valentine. <laughs> I remember Gilda Radner's audition. I didn't know them, you know. Right. She sang zippity-doo-dah, zippity a," You know, and I, because I am I was thinking, oh, I'm a, I'm a musical comedy person. I'm going to sing something like a weird song that had nothing to do with being a <laughs> disciple of Jesus. It was at 20, man, you've had it. Uh, and I'm doing bumps and grinds. (laughs) And it was so inappropriate. Anyway, I didn't get the part. Right. Eugene got the part. Gilda did. Marty and uh, Marty Short. Marty Short, yeah. Paul Schaefer. Victor Garber was Jesus. Paul Schaefer was our was our musical director. This is unbelievable. Yeah. Because
0: at the time, though. If you listed these names, would they have meant anything to anyone outside of Toronto?
1: No. Victor might have. Yes. I I hear what you're saying. Maybe not outside of Toronto. Absolutely.
0: So now, of course, like this is the murderer's row of of comedy. (laughs) But and so, okay, so you didn't initially get it.
1: I didn't. No, I did not. And Eugene and I, of course, were friends because we'd done Foxy Lady. He was a PA on Foxy Lady. And then we, you know, the stars of Cannibal Girls. These girls eat men. That was the byline. So we were, we were good friends, and I, I was devastated because unlike anybody in that room who had auditioned, I literally knew that show right. inside and out having seen it. So two weeks went by. And I was at Vic Tanny's, which was a spa in those days, mm-hmm. like Equinox is today, because mm-hmm. I was so depressed and defeated and rejected, and I was uh, eating and going to the sauna and then eating and then exercising. And one day I was in the change room, and there was an announcement over the loudspeaker, would Andrea Martin please come to the phone? It was Eugene. Wow. And he said, Andrea, the girl who sings Day by Day was fired. And if you were having a party tonight and come to this party and just be yourself. And I think you'd have a really great shot at getting the part. Wow. And I did. And I guess I was funny and I was cast in it. So I opened it. The oh, opened the show. So you
0: were there by the time. Okay. Yeah. We, we get that it was absolutely a, a big thing even before it opened. When it opened and, it, and you guys were all together, how much of a success was it?
1: It was a huge success. We ran at the Royal Alexander Theater, which is a beautiful old theater mm-hmm. in Toronto. Mm-hmm. You know, really w- was a theater where all the legitimate yeah. shows came. And I just saw come from away there, by yeah. the way. Oh, I cool. saw it at yeah, the Royal yeah. Alex Theater. Yeah, yeah I've yeah. seen so many shows there that have later come to um, New York. And then it moved to the Bayview Playhouse. And I well, I don't know how long I stayed with it. You probably know. <laughs> but I don't know, a year, a year and a half. And then... And then let me see. I don't know if it closed or if I just left. I can't remember, really. But then my career was really kind of taking off. Right. I was doing a lot of commercials there and doing dinner theater What's a nice country like you doing in a state <laughs> like this with Marty, right. by the way. Right. And I guess in 1976, there were auditions for Second City. And no, yeah, no, just, have I got these dates no, wrong? No, that sounds all right. Okay, and, good. And no,
0: but what I want to tee that up. Because we're gonna—that's obviously a huge part of your life. Today, everybody knows what Second City is, even yeah. people that are not actors or whatever. Because it's—it's it's, thanks to you guys and generations that have followed. It's that's the place for for improv, right? But at that time, was Second City a, a big deal?
1: So here's what happened: yeah. the original company of, of Second City in Toronto was co- comprised of Gilda Radner, mm-hmm. of course, who I'd known from Godspell. Mm-hmm. And that was enough, really. I I think this is what's important to to say to your viewers. In the 70s, there wasn't a big booming comedy group of people, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a very small group. We all knew each other. We were all cast together in the Molson Beer commercials Mm -hmm. and then God's. So we knew each other. And I went to see Gilda in Second City, of which she was unbelievably brilliant and wow was she amazing on stage i you know what would they do just
0: like a nightly or how often would they perform yeah so
1: so second city is um i don't know how it is anymore but then you would um uh, create a show from the improvisations at the end of the set show so they were doing a set show that they had written, mm-hmm. and then at the end, so then the show ends, and then people who want to stay after. If you wanted to stay afterwards, you could see the actors that just sh- did the show improvise.
0: Basically, they're going to do it whether or not anyone's there. It's, it's, is that right? It's like their exercise almost.
1: Well, you know, it was a cool thing to do, yeah. right? People liked it. It was a, it was such a different time, and nobody really knew about these shows. Now, on every corner, right, there's right, an improv right. thing, right? So that was the only place. It was it was it was a very uh, mixed with the, the rock scene, the, the rock and roll scene there as comedy mm-hmm. and rock and roll started out kind of. Uh, they were they blended very well together so we'd get that audience that those kids coming in the rock world there carol pope and all oh, so yeah. many other people and we'd get lovers of comedy and and the theater maybe was 150 200 so it was always full wow. it was a really hip place to go
0: and so you go and see it because gilda's in it and, and yeah. near the beginning which so cuz they they even preceded saturday night live right? yes
1: yes so what happened is the company I'm sure I'm going to get everything wrong. because I funny. can't remember anything, but it's going to be approximate. Yeah, yeah. So Bill Murray and Brian Doyle Murray were part of that company. Um, Dan Aykroyd was, and w- when Saturday Night Live started, mm-hmm. those people it, were the original in the original company. And then there was nobody at Second they City. They stole them away. From- yeah, yeah. A lot of the people from Second City in right. Toronto. Yeah, and so then they were looking for. Cast members, and I was doing what's a nice country like you, mm-hmm. and one of the, the director, Sheldon Patinkin, came to see me. Okay, not come to see me, came to see the show, right. and then the next day asked if I would audition for Second City, and you know, as I said, I was just kind of going along, sure or whatever, and I got on stage, and the audition was come through the door as five different characters. <laughs> And then I thought, well, this is really not for me. Right. I have no idea how to do this. And so I, I don't know, I came in with a limp or I came in <laughs> like I couldn't, like no, no character right, right, development. Right. And I got it. I got <laughs> the thing. What? And I and you know, I stayed with it for a long time. That went to SCTV, but I've never been comfortable improvising, although I've done it all my life. Oh my God, yeah, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Well, so
0: basically maybe what they res- respected there was that you were willing to try it, even though you weren't necessarily comfortable, right? <laughs> well, I
1: think what... It seems to me people that are successful yeah. in Second City or in improv or people that kind of are org- organically funny yeah. or have personalities. that. So I certainly had that. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I observed the world and with humor, I think, or, or my go-to place is humor if right. I'm scared. Right. And I was scared all the time. So there I guess, go. yeah.
0: We had... Eugene and Catherine on, t- on this podcast <gasps> when they were promoting Schitt's Creek.
1: Oh, my God. Uh,
0: and that was fun because we you know went over some of similar territory here. And so people who listen to that should definitely listen to this <laughs> and who are listening to this should listen to that. But one of the things that Catherine said, as she recalled about the way Second City worked, was something about you're supposed to say yes and in mm-hmm. response. to So is, can you talk about what that actually means that you have to just be open to whatever's thrown at you?
1: Yeah, so the way you, and by the way, I think Catherine O'Hara, I don't think there's anybody better doing improv. She and said the I, same about you. <laughs> oh, that's crazy because I, you know, not, but we were good together. Yeah. And I, I just worship her. Yeah. And that show is so funny. Mm-hmm. And I worship, you know, they're all re- really close friends after yeah. all these years. I think that's, that's the remarkable thing, oh, really. So nice. Yes, yeah, so, you know, the way to keep a scene alive, obviously, is saying yes. Like, if you ask me a question right now, well, you can ask me a question. Let's okay. try one. Okay. When
0: will you next be on Broadway, or will you be coming back to
1: Broadway? I don't know. And that kills the conversation. Yeah. Yes. So if I said yes, of course I'm going to come back to Broadway. Um, I'm not sure when that's going to be, but I'm going to definitely. Uh, right. And that yes, yeah. it so just you, keeps it you going. You just keep it alive. Right. You know who's uh, great at that. Whose Line, they're so great. I mean, that they keep that show alive for like an hour by saying yes to the most outrageous right. things. They're so skilled. It's a really interesting show to watch, I think, when you want to yeah. see a great improvisation but with really you, skilled performers. It, it yeah. just
0: feels when you're doing it, though, that, and, and this is, Actually, this is really in light of Pippin. This is going to be a funny <laughs> metaphor or comparison. But does it feel like you're out there walking on a tightrope, essentially?
1: Yeah, it's a different skill, right? I mean, one's really physical and one's all mental.
0: But just the idea that it, you, walking you, without you gotta be quick, you gotta yeah. be agile, yeah, and you gotta be, you gotta have some innate. Ability.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it doesn't feel like so much life and death, like right, I could right, have right, fallen right, right, from right, my partner's right. arms. But what did, what did I really think when I was doing yeah. it? Here's, here's what I thought, that I'm surrounded by – people all with different comedic abilities. And John Candy, you know, I work with him on stage. And and Dan Aykroyd, who was brilliant at the songs that we would make a song, which Mm -hmm. was an improv. And John Candy was always brilliant with character improv. So I guess I thought very early on, I'm never going to be great at this, but here's where I'm really going to be good. Once we come up with the scenes, I know that every night when I do the show, it's going to be... It's, I'm going to be good at that because right. I took acting very seriously, more seriously than improv. So I guess I must have signed off on the fact that I don't have to, I'm never going to be as great as they are. I'll do the best I can. I'll try to be funny. And I don't know, it didn't feel competitive in a strange right, right. way.
0: Yeah. Well, did, did things start to feel competitive as a as a group when, I guess in 19... 19- 75, I think, Saturday Night Live, as we refer. So they now start taking off. And all of a sudden, you've got easy access for the whole world to go on a Saturday night and just get this stuff for free on their television. Uh Was that almost an existential threat to Second City? And did Second City, it was the response, we need to do our own version of this.
1: So the answer is... Uh, yes to the second, mm-hmm. and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no to the first. Okay. I, I, you know, we were in Toronto, right, without any real sense of what's happening in New York mm-hmm. or LA, or, and that's how we did SCTV actually, also with no, in a vacuum, kind of in a bubble, mm-hmm. right? I think what happened is the success of Sorry Night Live became evident, and then CBC Canadian Broadcasting Company and Andrew Alexander, our producer, thought. Huh? Maybe we'll do our own version, and that's how SCTV Cause began. Because you already had your we cast already had up our You got it.
0: So SCTV for 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 a reminder <sighs> for folks, this was four camera sketch comedy show shot in an underground studio in Edmonton, organized around a fictional bad TV station <laughs> in Mellonville. So we're gonna the decisions made. We're gonna do SCTV. How does that affect your day to day life? Does this mean that you're no longer doing Second City or this is on top of Second City? Did some of people from Second City go over and do this and not others? How did it actually affect people's lives?
1: Boy, I wish Marty Short was here (laughs) who has kind of one of those uh, memories that can remember what I wore in 1972. (laughs) Wow. Let me think about this. I think Here's what I do know. Mm -hmm. When we were shooting Second City TV, SCTV, I was performing at Stratford. I was doing Candide at Stratford um, Shakespeare Festival. And I was also doing private lives with Maggie Smith and Brian Bedford. So I would do a show and then commute to Toronto. So, you know, my heart was always in acting, Mm -hmm. right? And- Oh my goodness! So I can't remember so much of the details. I th- I know some of the sh- scenes that we did in SCTV came from Second mm-hmm. City. Um, certainly, a *Perini Sclerosi* and *English for Beginners*. Dan Aykroyd and Val Bromfield created that piece, and Edith Prickly was created yes. on stage. Will, um, this is
0: your most frequently played character for that, that yeah. of yours, yeah, on the show. But but so you go over your people that were. In Second City, who now were a part of Second City TV, SCTV, yeah. you, Martin Short, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara – or was Catherine – Yeah. She did it, right? Yeah,
1: Catherine O'Hara, John Candy, right. Joe Flaherty, Dave Thomas, and Harold Ramis. And Harold Ramis. Yeah. And so – And we started it in Toronto. We started – the show on the CBC and it wasn't broadcast in the United States, but it became successful.
0: First thirteen episodes, just locally.
1: Yeah. Oh my God, was it local? But wow. some of the funniest stuff we ever did. But and like, we
0: were making a living doing this, though. It was like, a, it was not like community <laughs> TV. No, because well, when you say thirteen, when you say locally, I don't know. If, I like oh. you know, because you're and you're also working all this other, yeah. all these other jobs. Yes. I can't believe it. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. We were making a living because you know it was Toronto in the '70s. You didn't have to be making a lot of money. Right. Now it's like one of the most expensive oh God, cities in the yeah. world. but you know, we roomed with each other right. and but we were we were getting paid. I remember getting paid well yeah. I, I never yeah. I mean, we certainly got paid better when NBC bought it. Yeah. and then we were going to Edmonton, then we were shooting it in Edmonton. then that became the first started 30 minute show and then it became a 90 minute show. Wow, that was a lot of material to fill
0: every week yeah, Is yeah, that,
1: yeah, yeah, every week.
0: When, when did it air? was it, was it also Saturday night?
1: It it aired, I do know this, it aired after Saturday Night Live. So I think it Uh, was on at 1 or 1.30. I mean, the people that remember the show, watching it then, were all stoned. That is for (laughs) sure. So that's why there are so many musicians (laughs) that know the show. Like so many. Right.
0: Okay. So on the show, you did a lot of great impressions and impersonations that people can still (laughs) track down and find. They're absolutely out there. Sophia Loren, Bernadette (laughs) Peters, Barbara Streisand. But as you referenced, the one that I think was the most frequent was Edith Prickley, who was- network programmer turned bartender who is so old she can remember, quote, when the Dead Sea was only sick,
1: (laughs) close quote. Yeah, I don't want to – got to remember some lines here. Yeah, I walked into the the hotel. I saw some animal activists out there. They said to me, Edith, do you know how many animals had to die so you could wear that jacket? I said, do you know how many animals I had to sleep with to get it? (laughs) And this is stuff
0: that maybe another important thing we should do here is clarify what improvisation actually means because it doesn't necessarily mean – that you're coming up with that on the spot when it's live on TV or whatever or when it's on you guys go through it you work it through and then you figure out what worked and then so would it be correct to say the the example we've I've discussed with somebody else that yeah. it kind of helped me to understand what improv is in on the waterfront there's this famous scene where oh. I guess she drops her glove okay. and he picks it up and puts it on his hand and all the method actors in the world say, that's improv. They didn't stop the scene. He put it on. He <sighs> kept going. And it's a beautiful moment. As it turns out, because we had a chance to speak with Eva Marie Saint, oh my they God. did that in the rehearsal. She accidentally dropped it. He put it on. And Kazan said, you know what? Do that in the scene. Okay. So it's not that when it was being filmed for, for real... And so, does that also apply to what you do with with when we talk about improv and comedy? It doesn't mean we're necessarily seeing on the fly. You come up with something. We're seeing that the product of the of the of work a writing before, room. Yeah.
1: Yes, but on SCTV, there was there were both. First okay. of all, it was never live. We taped everything. Okay. Tape. There's a word. Yeah. We taped everything, <laughs> but we had ninety minutes to fill. So quite every week. Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis would improvise on the spot, Bob and Doug McKenzie. Mm-hmm. So they would improvise that. And I would improvise a lot as Edith Prickley because we had to fill so much. So, you know, I, there, there was a Johnny Carson showed this scene when I, performed on his show many years ago when I was a guest in 1981 because my son was born. So that <laughs> date I do remember. He was three weeks old. Right. It was Edith Prickley with the Rhythm Ace. And I improvised a lot of that on camera. Uh, so we wrote for uh, months and then in writers' rooms, but with only seven writers and us. It was a very small group of people. And then we would perform those sketches on a taped 90-minute show but oftentimes we couldn't fill it with material, so we would improvise.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, and w- just one more thing about Edith. How did she come to life? What was it that inspired this Why And why was it a character that you returned to more than others? You just felt at home in that character?
1: <laughs> why do I return to it? People like it. I like doing mm-hmm. it. She's ageless. Mm-hmm. I could do it at 20, mm-hmm. and I can do it today, mm-hmm. and I don't think, you know, I, with the same kind of energy, so I don't think you have to, had to be a certain age. And I always liked playing older people. I felt comfortable doing that, mm-hmm. I guess. And, and I like her spirit. And to be honest with you, it's really, it's a, a part of me, that kind of joyful, enthusiastic, positive mm-hmm. person. And it's a great thing to access because sure. I'm not always like that. <laughs> so it's a great thing. So here's how it started. After a show one night in Second City, somebody from the audience yelled out, do a scene on a parent-teacher, parent-teacher meeting. So we went backstage, and as we would do, uh, talk very quickly about Mm -hmm. what the scenes were going to be, and then we would grab costumes from the costume racks there, and the costumes mostly were comprised of things we would get from Salvation Army, Mm -hmm. or in those days there was something called "cripple Civilian, which is so politically incorrect, (laughs) dear God. It's Yeah, and... So Catherine had brought in her mom's faux nineteen fifties leopard jacket that her mom didn't want anymore and a faux hat, leopard hat. So I put that on quickly. I'd never put that on before. Mm-hmm. And then I grabbed a pair of black glasses, horn rim glasses, and I put red lipstick on. Didn't know what I was gonna be. And I came to the door of the she was the Catherine was a teacher and she opened the door and she said, looking at me. You must be Mrs. Prickly, <laughs> and I said, and the voice came out, "That's right, dear. Edith's the name. Prickly's a game." <laughs> <laughs> and then I walked in, and uh, I still can fit into that jacket and black wow. skirt. you and, have uh, it still. Yeah. I still do.
0: Good. That's that should go to the Smithsonian. That's God an awesome, bless Catherine awesome for mo- that. Yeah, so yeah.
1: Catherine, you know, is responsible for so much in my.
0: That's so cool. Life. I didn't I know. realize that. That's how that started. Yeah. Okay, so for your work on that show, you got an Emmy nomination for best actress in a variety series. And you won two for writing. How did that work? So when they, would they recognize individual sketches or would that be the whole group was considered the writers as well?
1: Yeah. So different shows were nominated. Gotcha. One year, I think we were the only people, you should check this. All these
0: different episodes? Oh, wow. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So we won, and I can't remember, of course, the episodes, but all of us got up on stage. There weren't that many now. When you see, oh my god, oh my god, that's crazy, 150 know, people. But then there were, I think, seven writers and us, and so there, so there weren't, there were like, I don't know, 14, 15 people that went up, and um, yeah. That's so great. we have two, two Emmys. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah.
0: One last SCTV question is: I'd love to try to pinpoint what what it was that made that show. Mm-hmm. so special. And I know that for you, this was also a challenge, not because there were a lack of things that made it special, but I remember reading something about your memoir, how you saved that chapter for last because you want to, you know, get that right. And I think you actually consulted with all the others who were part of it. And so what was it though, that looking back now with, what is it like 34?
1: Oh my gosh, 37. Well, the last show was 1983, right? So we started in 76. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about doing a documentary, but we all say, well, nobody will be alive that remembers the show because it was like over 40 years ago. I
0: mean, that would be amazing. But but as you remember your experience, why was it? seems like one of the creative highlights of, of your life and everybody else who was a part sure,
1: of it. For sure, for I, sure. I, I can't imagine anybody in, involved in that show would say anything different. Mm-hmm. We were innocent. We were starting out. There were no distractions. It was just Toronto. Then it was Edmonton. There, there was no competition. There were, were nobody putting, up, putting us up against each other. And so what that did was we had to rely on one another. Mm -hmm. That's a very special thing when you create something. We had to rely on each other for the writing, for the scenes, Mm -hmm. you know. Catherine wrote a lot of things that that she and I did together. And, And most importantly, we had to rely on each other for the laughter. So we would, when we weren't in scenes, we'd be out on the set watching and supporting or suggesting lines and... I don't know, we were all really different from different walks of life. And I think that that was important. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh, you know, our careers were formed with SCTV. And the fact that we're all still good friends today, I think, would suggest that there was something very pure about the experience, mm-hmm. and that's why I didn't want to write a chapter and exploit that purity. Right. And I felt that it was up to everybody uh, in the cast to write their own chapter. But I knew I couldn't write right, a book right, right. without. So I did. I called every single person. And I taped everybody's rem- memory of it, and you know, it w- I just really wanted to honor them and. Um, not use them to for filler for a book. No, that's
0: Great. Well, I hope the documentary happens. That would be terrific. I Uh, think it will. I ah, do. Yeah. Was this, did I hear Scorsese would be involved? You
1: did. Yes, yes,
0: yes. That is pretty awesome. So, and it's still like, how, where does it stand at the moment?
1: It's just really scheduling It's really hard Well it's not just I think we have to come up With some ideas Other than that Other than what the documentary Will be You know we all have You know we're different people We've all gone in different Directions in our life Some of us have written more I've certainly acted more you know, I come from. Uh, uh, wish I wish you were doing it with all of us. You know, I've always come from the summer stock mentality. of give me an outfit and we'll put on a right, show. Right. You know, other people are much more. Per, you know, Gene's a real perfectionist. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to do anything unless it's really written out and mm-hmm. really, you know, very carefully thought out. And Marty and I come from the school of give me a hat. And right, you know, right. and John Candy, may right. rest in peace, mm-hmm. was definitely more that. Mm-hmm. So. I think we're uh, brainstorming ideas, how much um, new material we right. want to put. I think nobody really wants to just do a panel and talk. Right. I think we want it to be much more creative. And when you have Martin Scorsese, I think you'd be a fool to – my thought is whatever you want to do, Mr. Scorsese, yeah, yeah. just tell me where to stand That's is, awesome. is what I think, yeah.
0: Well, so when your time at SCTV – uh, was over was it like you said about 81 83, 83. I think,
1: cuz i i remember that was i was pregnant with i remember everything yeah. d- according to my yes, children you could, sure. i was pregnant with my second child it was 1983 and we, and that's when i was nominated for best actress in a variety mm-hmm. cuz i was only 2 months pregnant mm-hmm. and nobody knew and i didn't win <laughs> but um i do i remember so that was the that was kind of the end we went to did cinemax for a couple of years mm-hmm. and yeah
0: well over the So over the next few years, you obviously are now raising your two Kids. children. Yes, in Pacific um,
1: Palisades, California. In California, yeah.
0: right. Uh, also, you know, popping up in, in some really interesting movies and TV shows. I We should just mention uh-huh. Club Paradise, <laughs> Wag the Dog, Hedwig and the Angry Edge, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Yeah. But it's my sense, I'm pretty confident about this, that... Theater has always been your kind of greatest passion. Is that fair to say? I'd
1: say that's really true. And, yeah.
0: And you made your Broadway debut, <laughs> as you mentioned, only you were already forty-five. Yeah. Nineteen ninety-two. Yeah. My favorite year. Win a Tony for your first time out. Yeah. And then another one followed. You're still. You're now the all-time record holder <laughs> for most Tony nominations in the category of Best Featured Actress in a Musical with five. Six overall, you've won twice. Why, over the last 25 years, has Broadway been the place that you want to keep coming back
1: to? You know, there's nothing like Broadway, there's nothing like the community when you work on when you rehearse something for weeks and weeks you do become a family television and film doesn't allow it although i do feel with great news because it's a a, a small ensemble yes. and people have asked me how i felt about it it really felt like i was doing a play mm-hmm. and i just we loved each other and we were on one big set in the newsroom so I don't know, and then you know Tina Fey executive produced it, and she comes from improv, and Tracy Wigfield wrote it, and she comes from I want to say Groundlings or maybe mm-hmm. um, so you uh, um, Upright Citizens okay. mm-hmm. So we we were all kind of came from the same background, so it felt and we were I don't know, it just felt like doing a play, and so that in that way it was like SCTV yeah. and doing a play, so theater. I think early on growing up in Portland, Maine, being Armenian, not really feeling like I fit in, honestly, mm-hmm. I gravitated to, toward, you know, acting in theater. And I think that that sense of um, camaraderie, collaboration, family, I just got in, it's cellular, you know. It just, it's where I feel the most at home. And I have to tell you, even after All these years, when I go into a rehearsal room, there's nothing, nothing can compare with that. The excitement of unwrap, especially in comedy, like I did Noises Off last year. And just the how to solve a, a comedy moment or how to do something physical or how to make something honest and how to create something. And you mentioned Act One before yes. we
0: started talking, and this was George F. Kaufman
1: Moss Hart, who Moss wrote Hart, the book. Yeah. yeah,
0: and just three characters you're playing in a drama, in a play, not yes, a right. not a musical, right. not a comedy. Right.
1: And James Lepine directed it, and we did it at the Lincoln Center. And it was the first time that I'd ever created characters. I'd nobody would ever, you know, brought Played that book to people, life, yeah. and ah, it was terrifying and so exhilarating and. I don't know. I'm, I'm so happy in the last few years of my life that I allow myself to take challenges that I might not have and I not might not have. I definitely didn't. Because, when you were younger, you're Yeah. I, I don't think I would take those kind. You know, there's a good thing about getting older. You realize you have less years left. So you say, well, literally, what am I waiting for? Okay. Mm-hmm. It's now or never. Right. And so the combination of love, curiosity, excitement, enthusiasm I have for the theater now doesn't seem to be oppressed by the fear or sabotaging I might have done when I was younger. And so Act One gave me both of that.
0: Well, and that was fabulous, but never was what you're talking about more apparent, I think, than in Pippin, which was was Tony number two. This was (laughs) 2013. You're playing the title character's grandmother. And- Can you talk about what you did in that show for somebody who didn't see it at in your, I guess, late 60s that most people, you know, a third (laughs) of your age would have been scared to do and something that you wouldn't, as you say, would not have done much earlier in your life?
1: Well, I don't think I would have dared to have dream that I could do it. I think that's where people fall short in Mm -hmm. their life is that they don't dare to dream. So. When I was offered the part of the grandmother in Pippin, and Irene Ryan had played it originally, the that number "Time to Start Living" was a what do I want to say a specialty act, I guess, right? And and so I, Diane Paulus offered it to my agent called me Mm -hmm. and I said I want to speak with Diane let me really really think about this my first reaction is no I don't want to do that but honestly let me because I love Diane Mm -hmm. let me really listen to this music and I listened to you know when you are as old as I my dear and I hope that you never are you can woefully wonder why my dear through your cataracts and guitar (laughs) and I listened to that song and I thought oh my god this is such an opportunity to talk to people and how to transform their lives my age and know that it's that life isn't over. Mm-hmm. And that at my age, I there's still more that I want to do. And I knew Diane wanted to do that as a circus theme. So I said to her, I've always loved Fellini and Giulietta Messina, who was married to Fellini. Mm-hmm. If you will consider creating a circus performance for me. And I don't mean gaggy, or mm-hmm, with gags mm-hmm. or with nets. Or I, I mean a real, cert, like, what would Bertha be, what would what she have been like in her 20s? And I met with Gypsy Snyder, who was our circus cho- choreographer, the brilliant Gypsy Snyder. I said, I want to do something really traditional. I don't want to do whatever people seem to be doing. The, I just want to do something traditional. So she said, what about a stationary trapeze? And so... The both of them came together because those two people, and the choreographer, uh, were so collaborative and open. But particularly Diane, that she would just open to my dream, really, to a vision that I had, and she let me do it.
0: And next thing you know, you're 12 feet above the stage <laughs> yeah. for what, like 10? Well, the, your your character yeah. comes in, but but. Just kind of steals the steals the show in the best sense. I mean, it's amazing, and and so I think we left out the part that you were a little afraid of heights, yeah, which you obviously had to overcome. I but I mean, that whole idea. Did you never had any any hiccups while it was while you were doing that in the show?
1: No, you know, I was really determined to be a circus performer. Yeah. I just held it in such high regard, and I loved the the acrobats that yeah. I was working with and you know I just I just loved them and respected them and their work ethic and discipline and was so I, every night they would you know train before I every single night while I did that show I would come in an hour and a half early and train wow. with them I took it very seriously because I really respected the art form and I took it really seriously because I wanted to tell to Pippin the my grandson that life wasn't over and that he had to follow his passion and dream. And so I, I sang that song to him like I would my own children. Mm-hmm. So really, it came at a time in my life, that piece, where Pippin, I don't know. You know when there's there's a certain moment in your life and everything comes together? Yeah. Not everybody has it. And I was so fortunate. I guess it's called confluence yes. or something. Yeah. yeah. And I, I had that. It was, it will, you know, when I talk about it, I, I want to cry all the time because I, I don't take for granted how special that time was in my life. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, the other thing that can be kind of magical, you know, it can be when, when things like that come together, but also when the product of things that you did decades ago reveals itself in the present, which is what it seems like the whole relationship with Tina Fey is, because let's just quote, Tina Fey, I mean, (laughs) logically enough, is one of your biggest fans. She wrote the forward to your memoir, noting that she loves you so much she wants to marry you. And she recently (laughs) told an interviewer, quote, when my husband and I got married in 2001, one wedding gift was a full set of VHS masters of all of SCTV. It was the greatest thing we'd ever received, close quote. So when did you and she first meet and even, you know, realize that there was this admiration. I, I imagine you might have been familiar with her work as well. So, I mean, this yeah. is... But it might have come as a surprise that you had such a, a big fan in this it person. It did, it yeah. did.
1: And then, you know, I am fortunate enough to... We just wrapped yesterday th- the third season of Difficult People and Amy Poehler. Yes, the other... So, what the that's heck? That's amazing. I knew if I stuck around long enough, I'd have a fan. <laughs> Those
0: are two Let's big see. ones. Let's see. I
1: think the, the, how I... I didn't know Tina, but mm-hmm. when they were doing Thirty Rock, they asked very early on. I was asked to play her mom, and I was doing Young Frankenstein at the time, and uh, I couldn't get out of my matinee we room previews, so I, I couldn't do it. But at the end of Thirty Rock, after the, all those years, they she asked me back, and I, it was the first time that I'd met her. And then
0: let's I, not gloss over that. How disappointing was that? Did you think you'd kind of miss the big? opportunity when you were not able to do that
1: yeah i did actually yeah i did i but you know you to what are, are you gonna do mel brooks mel brooks is yeah, telling right, me so right, give right, me some right, jokes right over the years so many of that generation of um of, of a comedian that Judd Apito and Amy, mm-hmm. and Tina, and uh, gosh, I, in the younger generation, I guess, Jimmy Kimmel, and mm-hmm. Marty keeps reminding me that so many people grew up with Bill Hader, so uh, Conan O'Brien is a huge fan mm-hmm. of SCTV. SCTV, yeah, so... That generation grew up with SCTV, and I, you know, I will just keep saying that we had no sense of anybody watching it. Mm-hmm. Again, we were in the bowels of right. the theater in Edmonton, the right. TV stand. so we didn't know. So, it, nothing. It wasn't a reality that anybody was watching. Nor did I think that these gifted people would. So, I guess in my heart, I believe that at one time, after hearing this for many years, that I would work were the people that had been coming up to me saying, you shaped our comedy career, you shaped our life. And so I'm so lucky to, have w- to work with two of those women now.
0: Because right now, obviously, the you, you know what had been the slightly missed opportunity with 30 Rock now manifests itself with the opportunity of Great News. So let's just say Tina and Robert Carlock, Carlock. who both were the, the EPs of that, are the EPs of Great News. It's Tracy Wigfeld, who Wickfield, uh, had yeah. been also involved with 30 Rock. She's the, I guess, the, the primary driver of great news. Can you talk about how you first heard about great news and, and if it immediately appealed to you in the same way that, you know, you you saw that there was something you wanted to do with 30 Rock? Was this a similar kind of thing you knew right away or? maybe not. You
1: know, it, oh, so over the last few years, Tina and I had socialized. We, we, Seth Rudetsky is, a, yes. um, yeah, and then I asked Tina if she'd read my book, and generously, insanely generously, because we really didn't know each other that well, she read it, and I know she read it and gave me those beautiful quotes. So we had, uh, you know, gotten to know each other socially, and then she called me and asked me if I would uh, meet with Tracy Wickfield at Cafe Luxembourg, because Tracy had an idea for a show. And I said, sure, 100%. Mm-hmm. Gosh, yes. I met with Tracy, loved her. She told me about her mom, the relationship with her mom.
0: Which is the inspiration which for Which is the yes.
1: inspiration for the show, <laughs> Great News. And then Tina and Robert joined us. And they you know, were very general in their discussion of it. I didn't know what was going to happen, but they had a ball at brunch. And then two months later, I was offered the part. The script was hilarious. It was hilarious. It was, uh, how could I ever turn up a part like that? And then I met her mom and I was even more inspired. Yeah.
0: Because her mom, from what I understand, would show up at the set of 30 Rock (laughs) and whatever. And just, and, and just, you know, there are certain lines in in this show (laughs) where again, just to, you end up joining the workforce for the first time in your sixties at the same place where your daughter is, is working. And there's, obviously some clashes about that. But one of the lines was, quote, I quit my job to raise you. You're all I have in the world. Well, except for your father, but he's boring. So I mean, there's stuff that I think it's great because it will play with uh, many, with multiple generations of people. And it's just funny is funny no matter what. But how do you like the whole idea, though, of as somebody who is used to doing a movie where you go in and you know, all right, it's gonna be 24 days, we're today we have to do this. And then tomorrow we have to do this. And you get through that versus theater where, you know, I'm going to be doing more or less the same thing for hopefully months and months here, the lifestyle of doing a sitcom yeah. where I think season one ends, ends up being 10 episodes, yeah. but you know, it's going to, it's now going to be continuing on. Do you like the requirements and demands of, of that type of a schedule that the type of schedule that comes with it?
1: Well, Great News was very special. It it was shot at Universal, and I was in a little hotel. Both my sons live in L.A. Mm -hmm. So I'd ride my bike. Nobody does that to Universal. Wow. And I was in almost every scene. So I just signed off on it. And frankly, you get into a rhythm when you're in a lot of the scenes it's not like a film where there's so much waiting. So in, in that way, it felt like a rehearsal all the mm-hmm. time. You know, I loved it. There were very long days. There were five days a week, but we grew to be so close because mostly we were all in the scenes together all the time. Right. Who are
0: you working the, the most frequently with?
1: John Michael Higgins, mm-hmm. Brie Gahilan, mm-hmm. Nicole Ritchie, Horatio Sands, um, Adam Campbell. Tracy was in the, on the set all the time. We were together all the time. It wasn't piecemeal like film I, at all. I really enjoyed it. And there were a lot of laughs, don't forget. So it wasn't like I was doing a procedural
0: right. crim-
1: crime <laughs> show where somebody's dead. Right. Oh, my <laughs> God. So, you know, it was, just, it was just a lot of fun.
0: I'm just thinking even though from the point of view of you're going to be spending, you're going to be shooting that much. There's that many lines even. Yeah. Again, it's, I wonder if it's a different learning process than when you're doing a show, you learn your stuff before it goes up, you know, before it opens and you make sure you maybe grow into it a bit, I would assume with film, you know, it's, you've got, you've got maybe however many scenes in a day, but here it just seems like the volume must be more than what, what, you're normally having to deal with.
1: It, it's true, and I think you really bring up a good point. Look, I don't want to kick a gift horse in the mm-hmm. mouth because I love doing sure. great news and I love doing difficult people. You know, as an actress, for me, you know, I, I, it's more. I don't second guess myself in my, as much in theater because we've had a six-week or ten-week rehearsal period, and so every night. It's dependent on the audience reaction if it's a comedy, but I really am in the character. I know the lines. So it allows for more exploration on stage, adjusting something according to uh, the moment in the moment. And I don't have that doing television, especially the way television is done now very quickly. So it's a different... Is there wow. an
0: audience when, where you guys do this? I'm no, trying to no. remember, yeah, no. Not
1: an audience, no. And
0: same with difficult and people. And same with
1: difficult people, yeah. right. So what do you have to do? You have to work another muscle, I guess. You have to also let go of perfection. Right. It's just a different muscle.
0: But when you, I mean, obviously <laughs> it's it's gone over so well that they, first of all, obviously just the fact that it's been renewed already. Yeah. But also, I don't know if you read reviews or uh, columns or things like that. But the response has been great. And and right now at, at a time when, you know, broadcast networks are struggling to find
1: yeah. an, you know, audience. an audience. Yeah, or yeah, or yeah. at least,
0: you know, they have their, they still have the size compared to cable or whatever, but it's not like the 90s when they right. were just pl- churning out hit after hit. They struggled. And so, and I think NBC in particular since 30 Rock has been looking for a, another kind of hit comedy in the same vein. So what's been the the reaction from what you've been able to feel, you know, being in the middle of the storm, can you still, are you still able to appreciate that people have really responded to this?
1: I, I, you know, it's certainly new. We've only had five shows or five shows on the air, right? I think people genuinely like it. I think, look, I think it's funny. I think there's really funny jokes in it. I think like, Anything, you know, it's going to grow. It, as as I say, maybe this is our rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, grow into it, yeah. you know, you don't forget when you see a play on Broadway. They have either workshopped it. They've been out of town. You know, they've had months and months and months. We met, and then we got into hair and makeup. <laughs> so, right. of course, there ha- there has to be some time for us to gel or to get the rhythm right. right. But I think. It's cast beautifully with beautifully comedic performers. And I think Tracy Wigfield is a—she's 33 years old. She, she, Tina Fey was her mentor, and she learned well. Mm-hmm. Very gifted. So I think if the audience will stay with us and give us some time, like they had to with 30 Rock, Tina keeps reminding me that took it while. took a long while of Seinfeld so many shows. Yeah,
0: that almost didn't make it, Seinfeld. It's amazing.
1: But you know, audiences aren't like that anymore and they want it instantly. And and so do I, by the way. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm everything is just quicker. But I think God bless Bob Greenblatt for giving us 13 more shows and I think there's something as you say diff- different demographics daughters who don't who are annoyed by their moms yes. and moms who are codependent <laughs> with their daughters right. and i think the television stations a great workplace and uh, i don't know i i have high hopes for it, I think. But I'm only looking at 13 shows, not thinking past that. Right,
0: right. Well, so one final question is this. There are now probably more female comedians, comedians, I don't know what the right term is these days, but than at any other time, more famous working female comedians than at any other time that I'm aware of. I believe that's the case. Would you- before we move any further, <laughs> do you think that's an accurate premise? No.
1: Are you talking about uh, actresses that do comedy? You're talking about stand-up. I would or? say.
0: I think. Uh, I would say across the board. I think you know when you think about stand-up, you've got you've got your Amy Schumer's who have yep. started a whole wave of people on TV. Yep. You've, you've Kalen and whatever, and, yeah. You've
1: writing. Mindy and
0: Tina and Amy yeah, and all yeah, of those. Yeah. You've got even with late night, it's not enough, but you've got. Chelsea Handler and, you know, just people making, regardless, it seems like it's moving in a positive direction there. And a lot of these people, as we've said, are people who credit you and your generation with kind of trailblazing for them. So I guess a question I have when you look at the, the scene today and which you're obviously still extremely involved with, but if you could snap your fingers and change it so that you were starting out today versus when you did. Would you, or is there something special <laughs> about having having gone through the trajectory that we've just spent an hour discussing? Oh
1: my God! <laughs> Honest to God, if I had to start out now, I don't think I'd have the perseverance. I I don't think I, uh, you know, I don't think I'd have the kind of ambition. I I think, I don't think I'd have the career that I, I really applaud all the girls that are doing it now. There's so much competition, and with so, with social media. Everybody has to have a real strong voice. Uh, You know, I don't know. I don't know. I just think I was really lucky to be in Toronto to work with SCTV, to, you know, get some uh, acting chops doing that. I really do not believe that I would have... I don't have, I don't think I had the personality to fight like so many people have to do today. And why I
0: change it? It's gone great <laughs> as it was. So yeah, uh, <laughs> you yeah, know, well, I look
1: back, yeah. Listen, I just um, want to keep doing it. And okay. I, I'm so happy there, there are a lot of women in positions that will hire me. So that's cool. <laughs>
0: well, thank you so much. This is really a treat. It's always, to, I can't wait to see you back on stage, but I know you got a few things you got to do in the <laughs> meantime. So I, yeah. I appreciate this. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you. What a okay. joy
1: to talk about myself for one hour. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.